to Isaiah chapter 44 this morning. Sunday morning we're taking a passage out of the section of Scripture that we're looking at on Sunday night. Sunday night we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we pick things up here in chapter 44, verse 9 this morning. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. It'll be marked to the passage that we're studying today. That way you can listen to the Word and then look at it with your own eyes. And it'll have double the impact that way. And please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 9. The Word of the Lord. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them be gathered together, let them stand up, yet... They shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals. He's fashioning an idol, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he gets hungry, and his strength fails, and he drinks no water, and he becomes faint. The craftsman, speaking of the carpenter, stretches out his ruler, ruler, and he marks out with chalk, and he fashions out of wood this god with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress, the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it, some of that same log, and he will warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half in the fire. With this half he eats his meal. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination or an idol? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? And let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your voice. And thank you for your word that forces us to consider things that we wouldn't otherwise consider. The things that keep us, Lord, from just being caught up in the flow, the very strong current of this world. 
We thank you that you produce children that are thinking children, reasoning their way through life. And we thank you, Lord, for the place that your word plays in all of that. And we pray your Holy Spirit would fall upon us today as we study your word and that we would examine the God that each one of us serves in our life and to examine it for whether it is worthy of our life and our adoration and our trust. Thank you, Lord, for your word, again, that makes us think and consider things that the world will never draw our attention to, the things that are most important in life and in the light of eternity. Bless us as we do that this morning. Meet with us, speak to us, move among us, Lord, and in the privacy of our hearts as we do so. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Man was made to worship. And worship we will. It is never not in a single human life in the world today or in this room or in all of human history, it is never a question of whether each and every one of us is a worshiper. It is only a question of who or what we worship. And King Solomon got this right, among other things, as he wrote by the Holy Spirit, the book of Ecclesiastes. And he wrote in that book, also he, speaking of God the Father, has put eternity in their hearts, in the hearts of man. And God has put eternity within our hearts. In other words, we will never be able to find ultimate satisfaction in life by only exploring the physical in life, the physical realm in life. We have been made for an eternal relationship with God, and the Bible teaches that we will not find peace or satisfaction until we are engaged in that relationship. St. Augustine famously declared, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And in a modern kind of way of putting it, there really is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every human being that can only be filled by God himself. We can pour all of the world into that hole and it will never satisfy. Only God can satisfy the great hole that is in each of our lives before we come to know him. Again, it is never a matter of whether a person worships something in life. It is only a matter of identifying what we worship and then determining, is that which I worship in life worthy of my worship? Is it worthy of being the master passion, the dominant influence, the dominant drive and appetite within my life? The Bible, in this Bible passage we're studying here this morning, God is confronting people with the folly of idolatry, the folly of making an idol the object of worship in our life, as opposed to worshiping the God of the Bible, the true and the living God. 
I think that we ought to begin this morning by asking ourselves, what is this thing called idolatry that God condemns in this passage and really through almost this entire section of the book of Isaiah? What is idolatry? In a nutshell, idolatry is simply the worship of any created thing. There are two great classes or divisions in all of the universe, all of the everything that exists all around us, all the way out into as far as out can go. Only two great divisions in all of the universe, and everything and everyone is in one of these two divisions. In the first division, there is God. There is the Creator. And then in the second division, there is the creation, all that has been created by the Creator. There is God in one camp, and He is the only one that occupies that single great division in all of existence. And then in the second camp, there is everything else. The two great truths that every person needs to know about the universe and about life, number one, there is a God, and number two, you're not him. You are in the second division. Only God is in the first division. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than God, the God who created all things. As Paul put it, puts it in Romans chapter 1, and he does it great length, idolatry is to worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Idolatry is the worship of anything that God created rather than God himself. This can include physical idols, which is what God is addressing here. Uh, the things that men create to worship uh, and uh, is the product of their hands. It can also include the worship of any person or place uh, as well as anything to worship or to love a person in life more than God. When I do that, I've made an idol of that person. It can be to love some material thing in life more than I love God. This is what is rampant within our culture today. We don't consider ourselves to be a nation of idolaters. But we are a nation of idolaters, and we live in a world of idolaters when we really understand what idolatry is. But idolatry isn't a part of a regular part of the vocabulary because it brings conviction. It brings revelation and light upon the sin that really in many ways is the dominant sin within our culture. So idolatry is to love some material thing more than I love God. And that can be a car, it can be homes or television or movies or entertainment or hobbies or sports or shopping or electronics or food and so forth. But it can also include not only some physical thing, but it can also include the worship or the love of some philosophy or some uh, man-made religion, or some man-made worldview or belief that is, has been birthed from the creation. In other words, that comes from human beings that have been created by God. Religion, philosophy, worldview, belief that comes from someone other than God. 
It also includes to love and to worship ourselves more than we love and we worship God. What a price people are paying individually in their own life, completely ignorant of the fact that the thing that is killing them and driving them into despair and depression and hopelessness is the fact that they love themselves and are consumed with themselves, trying to find meaning and purpose in life in themselves that can only be found in God. It's heartbreaking, and it's a heartbreaking blindness that we need to have our eyes opened up to so that we can move from it into the great relationship that we've been created for. The great idols that were worshipped in the ancient world were only a very, very thinly disguised worship of self. The gods of the ancient world were simply the deification of self, the deification of the lusts of our body or the lusts of the flesh, as the Bible puts it. The creating of these idols were an attempt to legitimize these desires of the flesh or to legitimize the worship of ourselves in an attempt to sanctify it and to uh, in an attempt to relieve any kind of conviction of sin in engaging in the lust and the drives of our bodies. For example, the worship of the ancient god Baal. Uh, Baal was the god of the intellect. He was the god of nature. And so uh, where these in the worship of Baal is where the ideas of created man are elevated above even the wisdom and the truth of the God who created them. And this particular idolatry, of course, is epidemic all around us, because, but because our modern society doesn't attach a physical idol to this idolatry the way that they did in the old days, it goes largely undetected today. And so here is a person who is naturally smart, nothing wrong with that, or naturally attracted to education and learning. And so they would uh, have been most inclined to make Baal their God. Why? Because Baal most closely represented what they worshipped in themselves among the ancient gods. It was basically, I'm given to the worship of my own intellect. This is the God of the intellect. I want to worship myself. Baal allows me to do that and uh, without conviction. The worship of Molech, the God of pleasure, the God of fun, would have attracted the person who is naturally in life, not given maybe to books or to study or the enlargement of their intellect, but their life is given to the seeking of pleasure and of fun. They would have made a beeline to the worship of Molech and to his temple, and they would have been naturally attracted uh, to it because they they are a person who is naturally attracted to fun and to pleasure. And why did such a person choose Molech as their god? Because pleasure and fun was the dominant passion and desire of their life. It was an attempt to sanctify the worship of self and our strongest desires. And then there is the god of mammon, the god of money, the god of power. And this god then, of course, attracted those whose strongest desires or lusts 
and life centered upon money and power. And if a person both then and now were willing to look right below the surface of their idolatry, right below the surface of what they chose to worship in life other than the God of the Bible, they would very quickly discover themselves that they were and they are essentially engaged in the worship of themselves. They simply found a God that allowed it to be legitimized and to be sanctified within their own mind. And today in our Western world, idolatries become so prevalent and so shameless and so bold that we don't even feel the need to create a physical object or an idol in which uh, to attempt to legitimize our worship of self or legitimize our worship of sin. We've dispensed with a pretense altogether. And now we just openly worship self and sin unashamedly. And because our worship of sin and self does not involve some religious object, some physical idol of some kind, we don't think of our sin and our selfishness in terms of idolatry. But it is. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than the God who created the universe and everything in it and it includes the worship even of ourselves. Our lusts, our emotions, our thoughts, our ideas, our self-originating philosophies and worldviews, beliefs, religions, all of these things that run contrary to the wisdom and the ways of our Creator. All of it is idolatry. It is to worship anything other than the God who created us and all that is around us. In our passage here, God brings out the folly of idolatry. He exposes the folly of the idolatry that the children of Judah were engaged in. And we can encapsulate his scorn for the idols that they chose to worship into four questions he was essentially asking both them and those, those that were making these false idols, the idol makers, but then also by extension asking these questions of those who then worship these idols. In verse 9, he essentially asked the children of Judah, who were strongly engaged in idolatry, though professing to be a worshiper of God. He said, why worship something that is less than you? So here you have these men fashioning these idols, men who have eyes that could see, uh, who possessed minds that could be used to think and to reason, and yet they were fashioning gods to worship that had eyes but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. They had mouths, but they couldn't speak. And God is saying, think about it. Think about it. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. In other words, God is saying, if the idols are real, even they would rise up and rebuke you, telling you that you should be ashamed of worshiping them. God poses a second question to them in verse 11. 
And essentially God asks of them, why do you, why worship something you can create? Why in the world would you ever worship something that you can create? And here we have the insanity of men making gods. And the reason that worshiping something that we can create is insanity is because the creator is always greater than the creation. Whether it's a car or a watch or a bridge or a whatever, everywhere you look in life, the creator is always greater than his or her creation. By virtue of the creator's ability to first have the idea of creating a such and such, then having the intelligence to then design the idea, and then third, to have the power or the strength to then create the very thing that he or she has designed. And again, this is true of a swing set or a car or a bridge or any other creation of man. We are greater than anything that we can create by virtue of the fact that we have created it. And so God says it is folly to worship anything that we or mankind creates because we are worshiping something that is as a result less than ourselves. And what is true of worshiping what man can create and does create as being unworthy of our worship, it is also true that it, anything that God has created is unworthy of our worship. It is folly to worship, God says here, what God has created. Why? Because what he has created is less than himself. And, that if, it, it, and if it is less than God, then why would we worship his creation rather than worshiping the greater that is the God who has created all of this that's been created? And this is why the worship of creation is irrational. Yes, the rose and the ocean and the mountain and the meadow and the sunrise and the sunset, all of them are beautiful. They are magnificent. They are the subject of literature and poems without limit. But the God who created them is greater than them and more beautiful still. And my worship is to be reserved for him. And so the person who worships creation or nature, even another human being, which is a part of God's creation, is stopping one step short of where our logic, a God-given logic, is intended to take us, and that is to the creator behind his creation. Again, Paul brings this out in tremendous kind of depth and uh, with great... Uh, intricateness in Romans chapter 1. The third question that God asks here of those that were creating these idols and those who were worshiping these idols is found in verse 12. In this essence in that verse, God is asking, why worship something that cannot strengthen or sustain you? Why would I worship a God that cannot impart strength and sustenance to me. So here is the blacksmith. He is fashioning an idol out of metal. 
and after some time he becomes tired and he becomes thirsty and he becomes hungry while he's making uh, this idol. And so he has to take a break in order to rest and to eat and to drink. But God poses the question, why would I worship an idol who requires my strength and my human effort in order to exist, rather than to worship the God who can strengthen and support me. I don't need a God who needs my effort for him to exist. I need a God who can strengthen and sustain me. And I suspect that you are in the same kind of camp. And so as the blacksmith is sitting there and he's resting, he's eating his tuna sandwich and his apple and he's drinking his water, he should ask, who has supplied the world with all that's required behind this sandwich and this apple and this water in order for me to be sustained and to be strengthened? I think I want to discover that God. And I want to make that God the object of my worship. Again, we don't need a God that needs us to take care of him. We need a God who can can and will take care of us. And that is a God that's worthy of our worship. And that is a God, the God of the Bible. The fourth question he poses to the makers of these idols and those who are following the idols is in he brings it all out in verses 13 through 17. And why in the world worship something that can burn? So here is the carpenter, and he's making idols out of wood. And during the day, he fashions a god, and he uses the finest woods. I mean, he knows how to use pine, and he knows how to use oak, and he knows how to use all of the different woods that are listed there. And so during the day, he fashions these idols out of the finest woods that are available, and he applies the finest craftsmanship in the creation of these idols. And then in the evening, from the same log that he made the idol out of during the day, he, to fashion the idol, he then, with the wood that's left over, he uses it for firewood. He uses it for warmth and for cooking. And the picture that's described here, it's very, very vivid. I feel like I'm almost in his house. You can hear the fire with the wood they're fueling it, and you can almost hear the cracking and the popping of the fire and the roast that is cooking as a result of the fire, the cold of the evening as he puts his hands up against the fire in order to warm himself, all of these things that we've experienced in some measure in our own lives. But God is saying that the craftsman would have done well to ask himself at the end of the day, How is it that I spend all of my days engaged in the creation and the worship of something that can burn? And then further to ask himself, why would I worship a God that I have fashioned out of this log as opposed to worshiping the God who created the log to begin with? And the mistake of the blacksmith... And the mistake of the carpenter is repeated by multiplied billions of people on a daily basis all around the world that we live in today. 
people who unthinkingly and uncritically and illogically settle into a life of idolatry and they don't even realize that they have. Never be satisfied with the worship of the creation, any creation, God's creation or man's creation. Keep looking behind the creation and what is behind that and then what is behind that and then what is behind that until you come to the one who has created everything, the God of the Bible, and then worship him, the creator, not the creation. Now, the worst part about idolatry is not the fact that it's illogical. That's the least of our problems, though a significant problem. God brings out in this that the worst part about idolatry is, again, not that it's illogical, but the life that it leads a person into. And he describes it in verses 18 through 20. And he tells us in the early part of verse 18 that it leads us into an ignorant life. Doesn't matter how many degrees a person has, doesn't matter what they scored on their SAT tests or their college entrance exams. It doesn't matter how great their intellect to miss God in this life, God is saying, is to ha- and to have failed to know him, to discover him, to love him, to obey him, to serve him, to worship him, to experience him, is to have missed everything in life of ultimate importance and to have lived a life in an astonishing and a heartbreaking ignorance. It is to live in darkness. It is to leave a great intellect and a great mind virtually unused and untapped. He says second in verse 19 that it is an illogical life. It is to live a life to live a life uh, like this requires the suspending of logic every day in our lives concerning the one thing that we ought to be the most discerning about, the most critical about, the most logical about in our thinking, and that is who and what we worship and what we give our life to and what we trust in for our eternities. He says in verse 20, number 3, that it is to feed on ashes graphic language, to live for an idol and to live engaged in idolatry is to attempt to live a life of spiritual meaning and purpose without the substance with which to do so. To engage in idolatry is always to starve to death spiritually. Even if my idol is religion, it is still to be starving to death, to be eating ashes, comparatively speaking, in comparison to knowing the true and the living God and being in relationship with him. And then forth, he says in verse 18, the latter part of it, it is a dangerous life because if a person is determined to live a life worshiping the creation as opposed to the creator, then there can come a time in each of our lives when God simply stops trying to convict a person of the folly of their idolatry and then he leaves them to it. 
And again, Paul brings this out. The parallels between here and Romans chapter 1 are very, very strong. Let me read a section of Romans chapter 1 to you in this regard. The danger of idolatry. And Paul wrote and he said, For since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, all of creation speaks of a creator. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish minds were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, speaking of these idols that people were fashioning and worshiping. Then here it is. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. And then here it is again. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And then here it is a third time. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting And then here it is, the consequences in technicolor of idolatry. Idolatry always leads into a certain kind of life. And Paul describes it being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Idolatry results in a loss of conviction concerning sin. And this loss of conviction concerning sin is the loss of something that is priceless. There's still hope in a person's life who is engaged in idolatry. As long as as there is this, as long as they have a softness in their heart and can listen to what God is trying to reason with them and you perhaps today from the scriptures. And a person can look and say, think to themselves, that makes sense. 
I realize that what I worship, what I make my idol in life, if I just scratch right below the surface, it is a worship of myself, my own likes, my own dislikes, etc., etc. To worship the creation is to stop short in a logical progression that ought to only stop with the answering of the question of who made this creation? Who is the great creator behind the creation? Who is the great designer behind the magnificence of the design? And as long as a person is still willing to ponder that question that God poses to every idolater, there is still hope. And all of us are idolaters before we come to know God. The danger is when a person settles into their idolatry and the warning and the logic of God and the warnings of God no longer have an impact. That's a dangerous place to be. There's this famous poem called The Hidden Line by Joseph Addison. Let me read a portion of it to you. It speaks to this vein, to this very subject. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is this mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. This is the danger, of course, associated with the rejection of God's gospel message, the rejection of God's invitation to every human being to receive the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life that is found in his Son. It's always serious business to hear God's invitation of salvation and then to say no to it. And it is a self-deception and a dangerous one for a person to spend long weeks or months or years even believing in the gospel and saying, one day I will believe in it. One day I will trust in it, but I'm not ready to now. I haven't had enough of my idols, my own way, my own purposes and desires related to life. I'll always be able to hear that gospel. It'll always impact me. I'll always have the conviction that it is the truth. That will never leave me. But I don't want to do it today. I'll do it one day. The problem with that is every time I hear the gospel and I fail to receive it, I have to harden myself in my heart in order to do so. And then one day you can come to a place where you no longer believe in the gospel, that you believed in even in your unbelief. 
And then in that hour, you can think that it's because now you've become too intellectual and too sophisticated and too worldly wise to believe in something that is uh, so simple and so Bible-oriented when in fact what has really happened is that you've crossed a very dangerous line. And it's a privilege to hear and to understand the gospel when it's presented to us. And the only safe thing to ever do with it is to believe in it the moment that I hear that invitation from God. And I'll tell you, I always shudder when I hear about some great atheist or some great rejecter of God, some apologist known around the world and historically as being a defier and a resister of the God of the Bible. Sometimes I'll read the story of their death, both in the past and even today, where they'll sometimes go confidently in their position into death and into eternity. And sometimes you read about the death of such a person and they die screaming. They die terrified, filled with fear. But it isn't always true. Sometimes they die peacefully. And people will look at such a death and say, well, he died so peacefully, so confidently. There must be something, uh, 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 you know, about this atheism or this rejection of God or this idolatry that he followed for a man to be able to die in the face of death with such uh, peace. But then never giving any thought to the possibility that it might be that it was the peace of one given over by God to the blindness and the ignorance of their idolatry. Jesus declared with astonishing, really, unmistakable boldness and clarity in John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most of us recognize that verse, most famous verse in the Bible, but Jesus didn't stop there in talking to Nicodemus. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. In other words, Jesus is saying that behind all idolatry, all rejection of the Creator, the God of the Bible, all rejection of his Son, of Jesus Christ, all that is... Uh, behind all idolatry is not a God, but a love for darkness and sin. 
that a faith in God would require a person to give up that they do not want to give up. That's the idol behind all unbelief directed toward Christ. In other words, when everything shakes out one day before God, it will be exposed that all idolatry and all rejection of Christ will have at its core the desire to protect the practice of some darkness, some sin, some selfishness, some pride, some self-will, some idol in a person's life. And it's important to know that because Jesus knows it now and one day we will see it with his same clarity. Idols merely serve to protect one's conscience from the conviction of God's Holy Spirit of sin and of the need of sinners for his Son. We live in a world where there's so many words that are spoken, so much philosophical thought, so much religious thought and speaking, and so many messages and so much gobbledygook and all, and God says, listen, I'll speak it to you with tremendous clarity. Behind all rejection of my son is a love for sin. And the idols are merely put together, whether established within the culture or those that people individually produce in their own lives, to protect that sin and to protect that person from the conviction of their sin. So what is the solution to idolatry? To leave behind the worship of the creation and to begin to worship the Creator, as Paul said, who is blessed forevermore and who alone is worthy of our worship. God is dealing with all of this on a rational level in this passage, on an intellectual level a mind level, trying to get them to think about what they're worshiping and to be critical of it in some measure. And God takes and he wipes the whole sanity, if there is any sanity at all, the appearance of sanity behind the insanity of idolatry. So he blows it to bits, and we need it to be blown to bits. But God isn't just a God of the mind. He isn't just a God who comes, even in this passage, in this room today, to say, listen, I want you to rethink what it is that you worship and to think of it critically. And if you are worshiping anything short of the creator, your creator, you need to rethink that. And make him the object of your worship today. But there's also the heart of God behind all of his word. The fact that God loves you. He loves you like nobody loves you. He knows you inside and out. 
He created you. He knows every struggle you have, every doubt you have. He knows every problem you've ever had. He knows what you have from your gene pool that you have to deal with that nobody else has to deal with. He knows all your ups and downs. He made you. You are fallen to be sure. But he's the one that has made you. And he loves you. And he loves you enough of every person in this world to sometimes take us aside, sit us in a chair and say, let's think about this. When the rest of the world, including the human beings that you think love you most in life, and they do on some level, when they will not challenge the folly of what you believe and what you think or expose to you the hardship in the poverty of life that you're living as a result of what you believe and what you worship, the people that claim to love us most in life but will allow us to drive off a cliff, God loves us with a higher love. And he's willing to take us aside and say, I made you. I love you. You're made for relationship with me. And here's a discussion that I need to have with you so that you will think in a different way than you've been taught to think or that you want to think so that you will come to me. The Bible teaches that God is love. And we look at his encouragements in his word and we say it's easy to recognize that he is loving behind his encouragements. But he is loving behind his rebuke and even his sanctified scorn in order to get us to think about things that the world will never force us to think about. And even those who love us most in life will never force us to think about He loves us with an even greater love. And how do I become a worshiper of the Creator? One way, through faith in His Son, through faith in Jesus Christ, making Him my Savior and my Lord this morning. Paul and Silas were in a jail in the city of Philippi. They'd been savagely, brutally mistreated in stocks within that jail and God brings an earthquake in and brings the whole house down and they're worshiping the Lord in the middle of the night as they're in these stocks, innocent of any wrongdoing. And as this earthquake occurs and all of the cells open up related to the prisoners and all, the, one of the, the jailer that was there, he cried out and he declared to Paul and to Silas, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And probably the most concise message concerning salvation in all of the Bible was Paul's response. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Put your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And to do so is so significant, 
Sometimes a person can feel like, I've been such a sinner. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've said. It, it can't be that easy. There has to be some lashes of some. Don't you take the, go back, the elders come back and beat you up or something like that? To No. God doesn't call us to do it that way. The greatest thing you can do to bless the heart of God today is as a sinner... Even in the greatness of your sin, put your faith in his son, the savior that he sent into the world to provide you with the forgiveness of sins. If you crawled on your hands and knees up the Himalayas, if you gave up dessert for the rest of your life, or you beat yourself up for the rest of your life. It wouldn't even, nothing you could do in a thousand lifetimes could even remotely approach what you do to and for the heart of God by putting your faith in his son. And immediately after our service, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front and they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to put your faith in Christ this morning and then move from the worship of the creation into the worship of the true and the living God. And as great a gap as there is between the creator and his creation, there is virtually the same gap between the quality of life that is found in the worship of the creation as opposed to the quality of life that is found in the worship of the creator. And it's all sitting there waiting for you and just a prayer away. That's a gospel presentation. While you can still hear it, and understand it while it still impacts the softness of your heart respond to it and come to God this morning let's stand together and we'll pray Father thank you for your love and all of the different ways that you manifest it. Thank you for your encouragements. Thank you for the hug and the embrace that we feel in the presence of your Holy Spirit. But we also, Lord, thank you for when your love is manifest in sitting us down and having a talk with us that no one else will have with us to tell us the truth as our Heavenly Father and as our Creator. And I pray and we pray, Lord, for each one that stands before you today that has not yet trusted in your Son for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, they're still engaged in the worship of the creation rather than the creator. We pray that you would overwhelm them with yourself right now. Let them know in the way that they can understand that they're home. That you love them. And that they, you are the one they have been looking for 
all of their life. We pray that you would infuse hope into their life, Lord. And as they come forward to receive you this morning, that you would do the same miracle in them that you have done in us. And Lord, we pray that the new life that they walk into with you will exceed their every need and every expectation. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you've never received Christ into your heart, ever, then these 